Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. Our guest today is CEO and CIO Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. All right, so Chris, uh, just starting off, right? We've we've witnessed a, a really substantial rally now from the March lows through our, to our April highs, um, and then out over the last you know couple of weeks, we've seen the market that has appeared to consolidate some of those gains. Um, and yeah, as we, you know, as we look underneath the surface, there appears to be just more divergence. And if I'm looking out you know, specifically at the tech and the Nasdaq. Um, tech leaders in NASDAQ, you know, they're moving on to new highs, and we've seen cyclicals, you know, specifically regional banks, commodities, industrials, consumer cyclicals. Right? Those folks, we've continued to see them decline another 15 to 20%. Um, you know, even if I'm looking at the Russell 2000, that's become negative here for the second quarter of, of 2020. Uh, the equally weighted S&P 500, um, when you look at it, an equal basis, is now down um, about 8% or so from its April high. So, you know, the first question I'm going to pose to you this morning here is, you know, is, is this market action consistent with your expectations, and is it saying anything about the recovery? Yeah, yeah that's a, a, a great question, Dan. When you look at it, you know, certainly the, the markets have looked calm, um, and you listen to commentators, and they certainly talk about going on to new highs. But there is a real divergence beneath the surface, and you know, this is all a part of what we've been discussing, which is you have to respect the cycle. And the, we had the shock. We had the overwhelming monetary support initially from the Fed. And as we've talked about, unlike prior recessions, this one's very transparent. So we know we're going to have a bottom in economic activity. We can see it. We can start to see it in the data. And so the market in April quickly discounted that, hey, we are going to get to the bottom in the next couple of months. And the market really is only trying to look out the next four months and try to figure out what the rate of change is relative to the current expectations that are priced in. And it could look and see that, wow, within two or three weeks, we've got the response from the Fed. Then we started getting fiscal response from Congress. So, hey, money's coming out, we can look at how much money's coming through fiscal stimulus, and it's as much or maybe even more than what we're going to lose temporarily in wages. So the market quickly discounted uh, the bottoming. And then as you move through time, it, it really does become what's that rate of change. And so I think there's a couple of factors here. There's really hot money that came in at the lows, and so it rallied, and let's face it, you know, while you can't see it in the broad averages, individual names that are up 50 to 100% off the lows, people are going to start booking those profits. Uh, we're starting to get more data come out um, where you've seen mortgage applications uh, that seem to be improving. But at the same time, when you look at mortgage delinquencies, not just what we're seeing out of the prime space, but when you even factor in uh, what you're seeing in, in what I'd call subprime or, or other avenues of financing, when you combine it with the forbearance, we're already up into high single digits. And so are those the market's starting to go, hey, are those forbearances going to become delinquencies? And they're at levels that are already higher than what we saw in the financial crisis in 2009 when it was centered around mortgages. So you're starting to get this tug of war between Yes, we can see an improvement, but what is what is going to be the level of improvement? How fast is it going to occur? And as the data, and we're starting to get real-time data um, out of consumer spending, you can look at you know mobility indices, things such as that. 
You're starting to get real-time data, but is it accelerating? Where does it start to level off? And where is that relative to expectations? And that's the tug of war we're seeing in the marketplace. And let's not forget, um, the markets are driven by liquidity. We had the shock and awe of the Fed growing their balance sheet at an annualized rate of 100% of GDP, but there's a reason they did that. And there's a reason why uh, the markets were as concerned as they originally were, which is, hey, we're relying on the federal budget to keep this economy going in any shape at all. And that means they have to issue bonds in order to pay for that. So the Treasury issuance is going to absorb that liquidity. And when it does, that's less liquidity for equities and other risk assets. And as we've talked about, you know, the Fed responded so quickly, it opened up credit markets, and we have seen a flood of bond issuance. And that bond issuance, while it's great, it delays bankruptcies, it gets rid of refinance risk for levered corporate entities. Again, that's liquidity that's coming out of, out of other, other spaces, and it's kind of a net negative for equities, right? Uh, we haven't seen anything that says that the asset value in aggregate is going to be higher than what we thought it was going to be you know, six months ago, yet we've thrown more debt on top of that, that, that asset value, which means the equity tranche is what's left over has gotten smaller. So you know, we're, we're in this tug of war. We're going to be here. I know we've talked about in the past while we, with the Fed action, we went from a liquidity crisis to a solvency crisis, but it's not permanent, right? The liquidity issues can crop back up for for the equity markets. And so we need to keep an eye on that and we'll continue to do so. Let me, let me touch on something you mentioned. So you, you, you described, you know, the need to respect the cycle. And, you know, this week we released another you know, 3 million initial job loss claims. I mean, the, uh, that's no improvement from where we've been, right? And you know, we've had Fed futures, the market start to discount negative rates in the U.S. Um, just this week, we had the Democrats in the House propose another you know, $3 trillion stimulus bill. Uh, so, you know, following up on that, right, are you surprised by the continued elevated initial jobs claims? And do you think there's any takeaways from that press release? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, we're not surprised by the elevated uh, initial claims. And there's a couple of reasons why. You know, as we've talked about, I mean, we're, we are only you know, 12 weeks into dealing with the impact of COVID-19. Um, and I really think people need to think of COVID-19 not as a virus when they're talking about markets and the economy. It's an accelerant, right? It accelerates uh, trends. It's going to accelerate what was going to happen over the next 12 to 18 months into two months. It's going to accelerate transformation within the economy and dealing with uh, leverage and balance that was going to play out over 10 years into 24 months. Well, the same is true of the business cycle. So we had the initial layoffs, which were the short cycle businesses, right, where there's not a backlog, they're not extended product projects. It was restaurants. It was leisure. It was hospitality. It was retail. Now what we're seeing come through or the longer cycle uh, jobless claims. So whether that's IT projects, CapEx, commercial real estate projects, where they're, they're ending and now there's not anything on the other side, that's going to continue to play out for some time. And so we shouldn't be surprised that we have these elevated claims. But I would, what I, what people need to start paying attention to 
because there was a little bit of a silver lining in this week's jobless claims. Um, don't focus on the initial claims. They're going to be elevated. They're going to stay elevated uh, for a whole host of reasons. As I said, the longer cycle elements are going to start to lay off. Cities, states, counties that have, have balanced budgets are going to start to lay off. However, focus on the continuing claims, right? Uh, you know, unemployment uh, offices in, in states are, are being overwhelmed, and so there's a lot of kind of you could have bad data in those initial claims, but the continuing claims are kind of cleaned up data. And they're telling us what is the net increase week to week in unemployment. So while in prior weeks we saw a pretty good transfer from those initial claims into continuing claims the following week, we really didn't see that this week, right? So I think continuing claims were only up 400,000. So that, that, to me, says we're leveling off on kind of that job losses. I want to see that confirmed over the next couple of weeks so that I know it's not a, a statistical anomaly. It's actually happening. And that can be the result of a couple of things. One, we have restarted the economy. So net-net, if we laid off 3 million people last week, 2.5 million went back to work. So there was only a 500,000 increase in continuing claims. The other part of it could be is we really don't know how much of each week's initial claims are duplicates from the prior week where a claim was submitted, it was rejected, it had to be submitted again. And we just can't underestimate how antiquated some of these systems and processes are. And so the, just focus on the continuing claims. And, and I thought for the first time in a while that was kind of a silver lining. Now, it's always a lagging indicator, so the market already knew this, but the trajectory of that over the coming weeks and couple of months is going to be important. Yeah, I know that's, that's something to really keep an eye on. Yeah, sure. Thank you for sharing the insight. I mean, I was looking to keep an eye on the continuum. But, um, yeah, very, very interesting on, uh, on the jobless claim front. Um, switching gears a little bit, both Fed Chairman Powell and the Bank of England stated that they're not considering negative interest rates. Uh, I got to ask you, you know, is, do you think there's a real possibility that we have negative interest rates? And you know, further beyond that, what what would be the implications? You know, we just need to hope we don't go there. It is it is a it is a possibility. You know, you'd have loved to have seen a more uh, adamant response out of the Bank of England and the Fed that they are not and will never consider negative rates. But that's not what they said. Now. I get they may it may truly be the case that they will never go there, but never say never, uh, just as a as a way to save face. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we go to negative interest rates, I don't know that you can get bearish enough because uh, that's a world that that really is going to have to is going to struggle um, not only with deleveraging because there's just going to be a lack of credit intermediation. And for us to get there, it means we really haven't been successful reflating economic activity. And I really think we'd end up with a, a real banking crisis, and it would probably start overseas, but it would quickly wash up on the shores of the United States. The rest of the world is relying on the positive rates in North America foreign banks are relying on it, investors, insurance companies are relying on it. It's why there's been so much dollar liquidity in the U.S. 
for the last several years. It's part of the reason we built up a leverage bubble. So for us to go to negative interest rates, it, it would have pretty broad ramifications in order to do that. And you know, this is a topic that we're going to start talking more about, uh, and it really relates to the dollar and a balance that we have between fiscal policy and monetary policy. And so the U.S. for the last three years has been running very loose fiscal policy and very tight monetary policy, meaning higher rates. And that keeps upward pressure on the U.S. dollar, but it also provides um, room for credit intermediaries to, to make money. Um, you know, the rest of the developed world, principally Europe and Japan, have been running uh, a little less loose fiscal policy, you know, tight in some areas, a little less loose in others, uh, but looser monetary policy. So, you know, they've been leaning on our tighter monetary policy, and so, it, you know, it, it's a precarious situation if we go to negative rates. It, in my mind, negative rates, don't let anybody kid you, uh, it is truly deflationary. Right, right, of course. Um, so in, in you know, bigger news this week, you know, we saw the Democratic proposal for $3 trillion in stimulus. Uh, you know, I guess the question here is, is really, you know, do you think investors should take comfort and that there would be sufficient policy support to assure an economic recovery? Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. You know, we're, we're going to find our – in a position, and this is pretty consistent with kind of where we are in our broader, longer-term cycles, and ultimately when you end up in a crisis, whether it's because of a virus or some other issue, um, you know, your federal government takes a bigger role in the economy, um, and it has positives and negatives. And the positive is it kind of it kind of keeps things going. The negative is there's a ton of unintended consequences. So, yes, we should take comfort that we are getting a strong fiscal response. And there is a very real chance, depending on uh, the, the nature of the recovery and the delay between the, the impact of the fiscal policy and the monetary policy support, and when it really comes through, we could overstimulate. So um, at this stage, what they've done is sufficient. Now, it's been – uh, very blunt. It needs to get. It needs to start being more surgical. Um, what I don't like about this specific piece of legislation is it is purely political. And what I mean by that, the prior packages that were passed were done in an emergency, bipartisan way, driven by top down of the, of the party leadership, meaning they met, they knew it was a dire situation, they knew they had to work together, they put together policy and basically told their respective troops, vote for this, there's not an option, we got to get it through. The payback in, in requiring uh, the party membership on both sides to line up and vote accordingly was, okay, we're going to put out together this giant wish list and we're going to put everything you could ever want in it so that you can demonstrate to your voters that that's what you actually want and support. And so now we've been of the, the political gamesmanship. So while I take comfort in the fact that I know that they recognize the federal government is not just the lender of last resort, but is now the spender of last resort, I'm getting concerned that Look, the benefits of the CARES Act are going to run out 
in about the next eight and a half to, to about eight to ten weeks. Um, we don't have time for political gamesmanship, right? The time lag between legislation being initiated and money flowing and the impact hitting the real economy is is too great. We can't let them negotiate this for a month, get into a political spat, and then six weeks later we come out with a bill. It, it's going to start to be too late, and what we end up doing is creating really long-term sustainable damage to economies because the layoffs continue and the leverage builds. So while I'm encouraged that they recognize their role, I'm getting a little concerned that there's some complacency building up in Washington. And, you know, I what I'd like to see is let's run through the motions. They can do the $3 trillion. The Republicans can, you know, stomp their feet and say how bad it is. They can propose their stuff. But I really want to see them come together in the next week on a package that can be negotiated and really will pass. Because uh, you know, this is the real issue. I, I, I just can't stress strongly enough how much we need real fiscal uh, support for this economy or it, the recovery is going to be uh, a lot more drawn out. Right. And, and while I got you going a little bit on politics, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to ask you your thoughts here. You know, we've, we've seen some rhetoric out of Washington uh, against China. Um, you know, we saw the president propose some action to uh, you know, eventually prevent or potentially prevent public pensions from owning Chinese securities. You know, the president also announced that they're evaluating uh, the relaxed listing requirements that Chinese companies are utilizing and listing shares on U.S. exchanges. Um, so, you know, do you think this is this is just politics as usual, or you know, and, and I guess beyond that, you know, how does that ultimately factor into you know some of your investment outlook? Yeah, I I think this is a narrative that investors need to start paying a lot of attention to. Um, I think. It is politics as usual. Trump really needs to make uh, really needs to make China the boogeyman. Uh, they need he needs to go into the election with China being the the evil empire out to get us. And quite frankly, there's there's more than a little grain of truth to that. They they filled that role quite nicely because it's built in fact so far. Um, but because he, he's not going to be able to focus on the economy. Uh, he's not going to have anything else to really bank on. We really don't know where equity markets are going to be, and that's the barometer that he's wanted to use. So let, it is going to be China. That's the politics as usual. What's unusual is, look, it, it's been known that a lot of the Chinese-listed companies are fraud. It's been known that the Chinese-listed companies kind of skirt the requirements for U.S.-based companies. That's not new. What is new is there seems to be some bipartisan support for really addressing this. And it's more than just the United States. So if I think there's a couple of interesting data points. One, we didn't wait. We went ahead and the president made the change and said certain you know, public pension plans are not going to invest in U.S. equities. We're going to start to see pressure ramping up on the ETF houses and the way they include Chinese equities. And we've seen now we're starting to see support for really addressing the China's access to U.S. equity markets. And there was an interesting piece of data uh, that came out this week where German intelligence has confirmed they have evidence 
that China pressured the WHO, not sure how much pressure it actually took, may have been kind of easy, to get them to delay reporting out what was going on with the Wuhan virus and, and whether there was really human-to-human transmission. So you're seeing an international coalescence to push back. We've seen it out of Japan. So China's kind of laid their hands, you know, they, they put their cards on the table in this environment, and they really may have overplayed it. None of this is good for margins. None of this is good for capital, right? This is risk asset negative. And it's not going to surprise me to see it ramp up because China's initiatives globally are around sourcing dollars. And as we said, liquidity is everything, and China's in a very, very tough spot, and they need access to dollars. And our biggest defense against China in the dirty pool that, that, that they play around the world is to start cutting off their access to dollar liquidity. And one way to do that is through the U.S. equity markets. There's certainly other ways to do that. So let's look to see if this builds steam. If it does, it's going to be risk asset negative. It may be dollar positive, which again is risk asset negative. So it, we, it's definitely something that we're focused on as we evaluate companies and, and what we think could impact longer term earnings for individual securities. So as you talk about risk asset negative, you know, this, this leads nicely into, you know, maybe that would be our final question of the afternoon. And, you know, so as, as we're looking at the nature of this recession and, and the, the market economic context that's coming into this recession, right? Just position it with, you know, we had extremely high equity valuations in the U.S., excessive leverage, both in the corporate and, and sovereign world. Um, we're going through an earnings recession, maturing business cycle uh, with rising output gaps. So, you know, you know, right now, you know, what, are you, what are you monitoring to determine if we're building a durable global recovery in the economy and, and in the equity market? Yeah, I, you know, that that is going to be the key, especially when you think about not only where you're going to allocate capital across the world, but even how you want to construct your underlying portfolio. So again, I think CV19 is an accelerant. All of the trends that we thought would roll out over the next 10 years are going to occur very quickly. So that that means, uh, you know, again, dealing with the entitlement obligations, the federal deficit, how are we going to address that? What are we going to do with the pension obligations? Um, you know, how are we going to transition business? What are we going to onshore? Where are we going to pull supply chains back? You know, even more broadly, you know, to what extent are companies going to continue to work remotely? What are the implications for commercial real estate? All that's kind of coming together. Now, what we've seen in the markets is, Prior winners continue to win. Um, I'm in the camp that at, at this stage, it is going to be very difficult to get a durable economic recovery and a durable market rally that is led by large cap growth companies. And the reason I say that is, it, given the sell-off in the other areas and the extreme pressure that we've seen in emerging markets and cyclicals and commodities, that if those companies are continuing to lead, it means there is no underlying fundamental improvement around the world and the deflationary pressures are increasing. So what do we watch to monitor that? All of that is going to come vis-a-vis the dollar. So number one, again, short-term, we've talked about We've had our shock. We had our response, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. 
we're at our Bear Stearns moment, which is meant to be a marker on a timeline, not a, 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 a precursor to an identified event. And when I look at and we continue to watch Euro dollar markets, they're saying, look, it's great that we're going to have a recovery, but they're still saying no V-shaped recovery. It's going to be slow. It's going to it's going to start maybe in the fall. Um, and it, it's not going to be it's actually going to be weaker potentially than what we saw, you know, coming out of 09 and 10. So that tells me that that's what we're monitoring now. I need to watch and see the policy responses um, and see what's ultimately going to happen with the dollar because, you know, sure, it's something we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks and months, but it's easy for the dollar to become a wrecking ball to risk assets and to the broader global economy. And it's going to be up to a very coordinated fiscal policy and, and coordinated trade policy, for that matter, to keep that from happening. Well, I'll tell you what. Maybe this might be our, our first podcast cliffhanger because I'd love to ask you a little bit more about the <laughs> about the uh, the U.S. dollar wrecking ball that's ahead. So maybe we'll we'll jump in next week and we'll we'll lead off with that. So uh, let's cut the day off and, and thank you, of course, for for all your insight as always. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you next week. Sounds good, Dan. Thank you. All right, thanks, Chris. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.